The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. music that can match the theological and depth and the richness that we find in the great hymns of our faith. But there's one hymn in particular that I've always loved just for its pure simplicity. It's perhaps the most widely sung hymn of all time, spanning a multitude of generations and cultures and believers of all languages. The melody of this hymn was composed in Geneva, Switzerland in the mid-1500s, at the request of none other than the reformer John Calvin. The tune was originally meant to accompany Psalm 134, but it received its modern lyrics nearly 150 years later from an Anglican bishop named Thomas Kinn. Thomas Kinn has an interesting story, and I would encourage you to Google him if you get a chance and read about his life. The short version is that he was eventually stripped of his position in the Church of England for refusing to swear an oath of allegiance to the king. He was basically forced into an early retirement where he ended up serving as a tutor at a university for the last 20 years of his life. While he was tutoring, he composed a series of three hymns for his students to sing each day. One to sing upon rising in the morning, another to sing at bedtime, and a third hymn that was to be sung at midnight if the student were to have trouble sleeping. The hymns were meant to help the students reset throughout the day, drowning out the distractions to instead focus on the Lord. Each hymn ended with the same verse, a verse of praise to God above all else. That final verse would later stand on its own and is now simply referred to as the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Many Bibles use the heading doxology for this final passage of Romans that we're going to read today. Some translations title it a benediction or a final prayer, but I prefer doxology because I think that best captures what Paul is trying to do in this text. That's his motivation. The word doxology comes from two different Greek words, doxa meaning praise or glory, and logos meaning word or saying. Literally, a doxology is a word of praise or a praise saying. The subject of a doxology is always God. is not meant to be informative, although it can be, but the primary purpose is to draw the attention of the hearer or the reader upward to give God praise and honor, recognizing that his glory is the be-all, end-all of our purpose. We find doxologies all throughout scripture, including in the Psalms of the Old Testament, virtually all of Paul's letters, as well as throughout the book of Revelation. There's just a few examples. Psalm 41, 13, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen. 6.3. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. 1 Timothy 1.17. The king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, to him be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Perhaps my favorite example is one that we actually read a few chapters ago in Romans 11. And by a few chapters ago, I mean this was like a year ago or something. It feels like we've been in Romans for a long time. But it's been really good. 
Romans 11, 33 through 36. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? Who has been given a gift? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Amen? Amen. I could keep going because there are dozens more. And I'm sorry if I left out your favorite. There's just too many good ones to choose from. But don't those verses just get you excited? Doesn't that just make you want to fall to your knees and worship the Lord? And that is the whole point of them. It's no accident that Paul is placing this doxology right here at the end of Romans. He's spent the past 16 chapters unpacking this incredible gospel message. He starts with a discussion of the problem of sin and our fallen nature in the first three chapters. And then he's presenting the goodness of God's grace and the solution of salvation through faith in Christ. That's chapters four through eight. And now the remainder of the book, he's discussing the challenge and the purpose of living the Christian life. How do we walk with the Lord and live in harmony with our brothers and sisters while still battling the desires of the flesh? And now we get to the end, and he's going to tie everything together and summarize the point of the whole book. So let's read it. This is Romans 16, this is verses 25 through the end. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings and has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Paul has taken us through the entirety of the gospel message from start to finish, from sinfulness to salvation to sanctification, and now finally to glorification. We get to end this epistle, we get to the end of the epistle, and Paul says all of this theology that I presented to you, these past 16 chapters, all of it is really about doxology. The theology matters, of course, but it's not the point. The point of the theology is to inform our doxology. It's supposed to lead us to the truth so that we can accept and acknowledge God for who he is, and then we can give him the glory that he's due. That is Paul's message in these three verses. Before we get into the meat of the text, though, I, I want to spend some time just kind of level setting. Why should we glorify God? What is the point? Why does a perfect, omnipotent, benevolent God desire to be glorified? And isn't it kind of selfish for God to demand glory from his creation? Let's start there, because I think our culture has a very different connotation of glory than what we see in Scripture. When you think of someone who is glory-seeking today, who do you think of? Maybe you think of a Hollywood star, or a professional athlete, or a political leader. We have this image in our heads of someone who is vain, prideful, a celebrity who wants to nothing but fame and glory for their own accomplishments, or even just for being who they are. But that is not why God desires glory. He is not arrogant or needy or vain. In fact, we know that God is perfectly righteous. So his desire for glory cannot come from a place of arrogance or selfishness. Instead, it stems from his humility, his unconditional, sacrificial love for his people. He wants us to glorify him so that we are continually drawn to him, not for his good, but for ours. God's glory is for our good. How can we be sure of that? 
Paul reminds us here in verse 27 that God is the God only wise. God's glory is part of his plan. His plan is perfect because he is perfect. He's wise. His ways are far above our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So we can trust him that his glory is a good thing. God wants us to keep him at the center of our focus because he knows that our natural tendency is to make ourselves the center. When we take our eyes off of him, we stop giving him the glory, and we start to feel pretty good about our own accomplishments. If that happens, we are going to fail ourselves every time. When we forget to give him praise and we start to praise others around us, those that impress us, at some point, those people are going to stumble, and that is going to cause us to stumble. God is wise. He knows that about us. He knows that it's for our own good that we keep our attention focused solely on him. And he loves us, so of course he wants what's good for us. But God is also all about justice. He's not only a good God, he is a just God. Justice means fairness. It means getting what you're due, what is owed to you. Who deserves glory more than the one who created all things? the one who holds all things together, the one who surrendered his own son to fulfill the promise of salvation that we ourselves were never owed. Justice dictates that God deserves our glory because of his righteousness and his goodness, so we have an obligation to give it to him. But giving glory to God shouldn't be done solely out of obligation. Yes, he wants it, he deserves it, his just nature demands it, but we should also desire to give it to him. It should be freely offered. Our natural response to people and things that we value is to glorify them. When we value something or someone, we prioritize them. We set them apart. We give them special treatment. Think about the way you treat your spouse or your kids or the priority that you place on your career or even the value that you give to your personal belongings, to your prized possessions. My wife and I just bought a brand new minivan. And I know a minivan is not the coolest car out there, but neither of us had ever bought a brand new car before. And let me tell you, I didn't even like driving it at first because it was too perfect. I was afraid I was going to mess it up. And my wife didn't want to drive it because she didn't want to be accused of messing it up. But man, I sung the praises of the Chrysler Pacifica I bragged about how great it drives, how much cargo space it has, how it's such a great investment for our family. I cleaned out our garage to make space for it. I bought those custom-fit, laser-measured floor mats. I even had a rule, no dogs allowed in the van. And that all went really well for about six months. And you guys know where this is going. Suddenly, in the span of a week, we got a rock chip in the windshield, scratched to the back bumper, and we broke the rule about the dogs. And now the premium cloth seats are permanently embedded with German shepherd fur, and just like that, it's ruined. Now, of course, that's a ridiculous example, but if I was willing to go that far out of my way to glorify an automobile, how much more should I desire to glorify God? It is good for us to glorify what is glorious. That's how it should be. We were created as human beings to be in awe of things that are beautiful, powerful things, good things. But really, who is more glorious than God? If we're going to glorify anything or anyone, it has to be him. He is perfect. He will never let us down. He will never disappoint us. His paint will never be scratched, 
no amount of smelly dog hair can penetrate his goodness. If we choose to glorify him, that glory is not misplaced. The respect that we give God will never be abused, and his character will never disappoint us. Not only should we desire to glorify God because he's worthy of our glory, but as we already covered, it's actually good for us to glorify him. It's for our good. When we give God honor and praise, when we give him our attention, it focuses us on his character and it draws us closer to him. As a result, we become more like him. We begin to model those characteristics that we worship. The things that we find so attractive about God, we begin to take them on for ourselves. And that's not only good for us, that is good for those around us, both believers and unbelievers. We're able to minister to those around us to be an example of the love of Christ, to disciple fellow believers. We become more effective at doing God's work the more that we become like him. Also, we should desire to glory, glorify God because that is our eternal destiny as believers. That's who we are. It's what we're called to do today and for all eternity. The vision that was given to John in Revelation chapter 7 is one where all people and even angels worship God forever for his goodness. Starting in verse 9 of, of Revelation 7, it says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. That is what we have to look forward to. The final step of our salvation journey, the process by which God rescues us and redeems us, is our glorification. Death is not the end for believers in Christ. Instead, we, like Christ, will be resurrected from the dead, and we will be given new, glorified bodies with which we will spend all eternity worshiping the Lord. That is our future. And in light of that reality, why should we wait? Because in fact, we've already been given new life. We're already empowered by the Holy Spirit to glorify God with our bodies. Paul already told us this back in chapter 8 of Romans. Verse 16, he said, We are the children of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Just as Christ suffered on this earth, so we must also suffer in life. That's the bad news. But the good news is that the suffering is not in vain. We suffer with Christ now, but one day we will be glorified with Christ. We know this also from Philippians 3.20 says our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Our suffering is tied to his suffering, but in that same way, our glorification is tied to his glorification. So why would we not desire that he be glorified, even now? One final point on why we glorify God, and then I promise we're going to get into the actual text. That's because of what happens when we don't glorify God. If we choose to reject God, we refuse to give him the glory he's due, then we condemn ourselves to life apart from him. This is laid out early on in Romans, way back in chapter 1. 
Paul says, all the attributes of God have already been revealed to all men since the creation of the world, so they are without excuse. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, and they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Therefore, God gave them up to their lustful desires. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped the creature rather than the creator. If we deny God his glory, we are only robbing ourselves. He will be glorified with or without us, make no mistake. But he does not just want our glory. But he does want our glory, and we ought to desire to give it to him. So we know why God desires our glory, and we know why he deserves our glory, and we know why we ought to give it to him. So how do we do it? How does Paul attribute glory to God in this particular doxology? If we look at the structure of these three verses at the end of Romans, and we see how they're organized, there's two main action statements. Two things that God does that Paul is giving him credit for. And those things are further evidenced by three supporting statements that Paul gives that are sandwiched in between. So look with me first at verse 25. He says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you. That's the first action. God strengthens us. Some translations say, Him who is able to establish you. I kind of like that word, established. To me, that gives the image of being rooted in Christ. He provides us a firm foundation, and then he holds us securely. We just discussed how God's will is for our good and how he desires for us to become more like him. That is true because apart from him, we are nothing. We are weak, unable to stand on our own. We're ineffective. We're fruitless without God. Jesus tells us in John 15 that we must abide in him and he in us. A branch cannot bear fruit by itself. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. So it makes sense that he would want to strengthen and establish us. We are established through the salvation of Christ's redeeming work on the cross, but it doesn't end there. We're continually established, continually strengthened through our ongoing relationship with God. Through prayer, through the power of his word, through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, he desires to be the source of strength so that we can effectively accomplish his will and his work. So we know that God desires to strengthen and establish us. And towards the end of the passage, Paul reminds us of the goal of that. That's the second action point. God strengthens us in order to do what? Look at the end of verse 26. Paul makes a claim about God, and then he crams all this supporting evidence in there, and then at the very end of verse 26... He tells us the why. It's to bring about the obedience of faith. What does that mean, the obedience of faith? Obedience and faith almost sound like opposites. Obedience sounds like legalism and following the rules. And doesn't that undermine the point of faith? But that's not what God's word tells us. James chapter 2 explains that faith without works is dead. Faith in Christ produces an abundant, obedient life, a more righteous life a life that looks more like Christ. When we're transformed to become more like Christ, then we're better able to carry out God's work. Preaching the gospel, discipling believers, caring for the least of these, battling the enemy, none of this can be done effectively in a way that glorifies God apart from obedient faith. The best part is we don't have to try and guess what obedient faith should look like. Christ has already shown us. In John chapter 17, talking to God the Father, 
Jesus says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Christ modeled obedient faith for us in submitting to the Father's will and in seeking to glorify him by accomplishing his work on earth. In that same way, we are called to submit ourselves to the will of the Father, to humbly trust and obey him, to do the work he's called us to do, all for his glory and his name's sake. So we know what God does for us. He strengthens us, and we know why he does it. It's to bring about the obedience of faith. So how do we know this? What is Paul's evidence? It's all wedged in here in the middle of our text. He gives us three proofs, these three according statements that we see sandwiched in the middle of the verses. Look with me. He says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to the gospel, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but is now disclosed through the prophetic writings, has been made known to all nations, and according to the command of the eternal God. So three accordings. One, according to the preaching of the gospel. Two, according to the revelation of the mystery. And three, according to the command of the eternal God. We'll take these one at a time. First, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. What does Paul mean by my gospel? That's a weird phrase. The gospel is not just for Paul. And Paul is not claiming that the gospel is something that he discovered or that he alone can preach. In fact, Paul tells us elsewhere that this is not his gospel, nor is it the revelation of any man. He says in Galatians 1 that he received the gospel through a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not Paul's gospel. He's just the messenger. So then what does he mean by saying my gospel? He's taking ownership of the charge of the gospel. His identity as a believer is now one with Christ, and so his obligation then is to fulfill the Great Commission. If you read further in Galatians, Paul explains how he's not the man he once was. He describes how he once persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. But then the gospel was revealed to him and he took ownership of it. He recognized the truth of who Christ is and then he submitted to God's calling and God was glorified as a result. I love this in Galatians where Paul says he starts ministering to these churches all around and they're confused. They can't understand what's happening. They say, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the very faith he once tried to destroy. And then Paul says, they glorified God because of me. So the gospel was revealed to Paul, and now it's been revealed to us through the preaching of Jesus Christ, and God is glorified through the preaching of that gospel and through the changing of hearts and minds and the transformation that results from the gospel message. Paul's second proof here is found at the end of verse 25 and the first half of verse 26. He says, not only does God strengthen us in the preaching of the gospel, It's also according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations. That is a mouthful, but it comes down to this. The beauty of the gospel, the way it glorifies God, is not just in the truth of the message. It's also in the way that it has been revealed. The revelation of the mystery that was kept secret from God's people for thousands of years, from the fall in the Garden of Eden all the way until the incarnation of Christ. And who does not love a good mystery? I know there are some people in this room who hate surprises. 
I know that because I am one of these people. I do not want to be caught off guard. I want to see the plan in advance. I want to know how it works. I want to understand what's going to happen and when it's going to happen. But you know what? Even if you don't like to be surprised, you can still appreciate the thoughtfulness of a good plan. If it were up to us to plan out the redemption of mankind, we'd probably do it much more simply. Why do we need all these generations of suffering and sacrifice? Why does God have to send his son to die? Why can't he just snap his fingers, save his elect, and be done with it? Get on with the happily ever after, right? But you know what? It wouldn't be as good. It wouldn't be as sweet. It would lose so much of its significance. There is something meaningful Something about the suspense of a complex mystery that makes the final reveal so great. Paul references in verse 26 all these prophetic writings that foretold Christ. Paul probably knew those scriptures front to back, considering his history. He called himself a Pharisee of Pharisees. These prophecies told of a gentle redeemer who would bring justice to all nations, not just the Jewish people. But that was confusing to the descendants of God's chosen people. They could not fathom that salvation would be offered to all. But that's why the revelation is so meaningful to Paul. If you remember, that's what chapter 11 of Romans was all about. The Gentiles being grafted into the remnant of Israel. And if you remember back even further, Paul started his letter to the Romans that same way. Turn with me for a minute back to the very beginning of Romans in chapter 1. says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who is descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Does that sound familiar? Paul is paralleling his introduction all the way back here at the end of the letter. He says the gospel was promised to us beforehand through prophets and the scriptures concerning Christ, and now the mystery has been revealed to us. And it's all about bringing about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name, for God's glory. That is how Paul began the epistle, and now he's bringing us full circle in these last three verses. So let's look at our last according statement. We have according to the preaching of the gospel, according to the revelation of the mystery, and now look in verse 26, according to the command of the eternal God. This is pretty straightforward. God, who is eternal, who exists outside of time and space, planned for all of this. And he is the one who's bringing it about. He created this plan to establish his people, to save them in spite of themselves, to strengthen them, to sanctify them, and to glorify them. Not only did he create this plan in all of his infinite wisdom, but he commanded it, the command of the eternal God. He commanded it so we can have confidence that it will be accomplished. Listen to what the Lord declares about himself in Isaiah chapter 46. He says, I am God and there is no other I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. 
Only God could have devised such a complex and marvelous plan of redemption, and only he can bring it to pass. That is why Paul is giving God the glory here. Only God could do this. And that's how he ends the letter. Look with me again at the text. To him who is able to strengthen you, to bring about the obedience of faith. How do we know this to be true? It's according to the preaching of the gospel. It's according to the revelation of the mystery. It's according to the command of the eternal God. To that God, the one who strengthens us, to him, the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Everything leading up to verse 27 is just a setup. It's just to get us to recognize how deserving God is of his glory. God wants our glory. He deserves our glory. We, his people, should desire to give him that glory. He strengthens and establishes us so that we can glorify him through obedient faith. And we can have confidence in all of this because of who God is and because of what he's revealed to us in Scripture. This whole concept is summarized so well by the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It says, The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And the word of God, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us in how we may glorify and enjoy him. So what does this mean for us as we leave this text? How should this truth inform our mission and direct our actions? I have two questions that I think can help us apply this. Number one, is bringing God the glory your primary objective in every aspect of your life? In your marriage? In raising your kids? In working at your job? In serving your church? And giving to charity? In voting in elections? In buying a car? All of the things that we do, the ways that we spend our time, the ways we spend our money, the relationships that we choose to invest in, are we doing it for the glory of God? Is that what motivates us? 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Is God getting the glory in everything you do? That's number one. Number two, as a church body, how can we most glorify God? Specifically us as Stone Oak Bible Church. Paul wrote to the, Rome, to the church in Romans because he saw that they were getting distracted. They were starting to fracture on these issues of Jew versus Gentile and faith versus works and how can salvation be made available to those who don't keep the whole law. And Paul's trying to cut through all of that tension and all that distraction and he's reminding them of their purpose as a church. Their aim is not to be right on every issue. They're not supposed to be in complete agreement on every matter of doctrine. Paul was not trying to unify their opinions. He was trying to unify their purpose. Their calling was not to be right. Their calling was to bring glory to God through the preaching of the gospel so that through the revelation of the mystery being made known to all, all might be saved. That is how God is glorified. I believe that's true for us too, church. We can strive to be right on every issue. We can struggle against each other and weed out those who disagree with us. We can seek to bring glory to ourselves by making our own opinions and preferences more important than those of our brothers and sisters. Or we can make the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ the center of our mission. We can make it our objective to glorify God by demonstrating the revelation of his mystery for all who would hear, so they might too believe.
I want to leave you with one more hymn. I told you I love hymns. This is another favorite. To God be the glory, great things he has done. So loved to the world that he gave us his son, who yielded his life in atonement for sin and opened the life gate that all may go in. Great things he has taught us, great things he has done, and great our rejoicing through Jesus the Son. But purer and higher and greater will be our wonder, our worship, when Jesus we see. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the earth hear his voice. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the people rejoice. Come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give him the glory, great things he has done.